Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're super excited to welcome you to an episode with Oliver Holle, founder and managing partner of the famed Speed Invest. We dive deep with Oliver on the founding story behind Speed Invest, growing the firm from 10 million euros to a whopping six. 600 million euro AUM. Oliver's investment strategy and his thinking behind vertically focused teams, talent development, the state of the current market, and what's next for Speed Invest. This episode is packed with learnings for anyone aiming to build a true VC franchise that's recognized and sought after by founders all across Europe. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs are in Europe and maybe even invest with them? Pre-register for our newsletter on theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Oliver, welcome to the show and thank you so much for finding the time to talk to us here at the European VC. We know your schedule is incredibly packed. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure and looking forward to have fun here. <laughs> ah, we're going to have a lot of fun here. Before we dive really into it, Oliver, I just want us to put a face on who Oliver Hall is and who is the guy who founded Speed Invest, really. I know many of our listeners meet Speed Invest quite often, be that in the media or during deals or conferences or wherever. So please do shed a light on the personal side here. I hear you're quite an avid water skier. Well, I was <laughs> for a long time in my life. Actually, I would say up until 25 years old, I thought I would do that professionally for the rest of my life. Then I got a bit bored, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, I, I loved it. I was doing that all the time I had during studies and enjoyed it tremendously. I was very, very competitive about it. I was never just as good as I wanted to be, but I guess the, the competitive spirit still is there and I still love the sport. I'm still doing it every single three minutes in basically from April to October. So still big on it. Where is it best to uh, water ski? Yeah, well, I mean, the best place is to be in Florida to do it, but that's a long <laughs> way from Vienna, Austria. <laughs> well, well, you can do it on any small lake and, and there are a couple of small clubs out there. It's like any sport. The good thing with water skiing is you easily win uh, competitions because there are not many people doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Success is almost guaranteed. <laughs> it's a nice I, thing. <laughs> I used to bodybuild. I'm 72 kilos now or I was 105, so you definitely... Oh, wow. wouldn't know it now <laughs> oh, wow. that was also a quite small community uh, so yes you could also make some splashes there <laughs> <laughs> very different win ratio than venture for sure yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but also a bit less to earn yeah. what you learn when you do competitive sports no matter what you do is you learn to lose yeah. you learn to not win and live with it and i think that was a big lesson for me personally and then i moved to business and philosophy actually both of these studies and then was very focused on actually going after a PhD career and but yeah. in parallel launched my first startup and then quickly discovered that the academic cycles are just too 
let's call it long feedback cycles for yeah, me yeah. <laughs> then fully jumped into the and yeah i actually hear there's a funny story to the name of that startup right it's like an acronym for something that isn't very sexy <laughs> sounding at least <laughs> well institute for social political simulations of social systems or something like that i can't <laughs> yeah we had a lot of fun back there you know it was not exactly commercially focused in the early days <laughs> but you know that's how great things yeah, start yeah, exactly. and you're also heading the uh, deep tech team at speed invest i'm guessing you have many founders who you can relate to then yeah and we set up an institute for artificial intelligence in the early 2000s when frankly speaking nothing was working <laughs> but the powerpoint slides looked exactly as they look now but now it's actually it does work <laughs> they actually <laughs> deliver results it's a big difference so i'm very 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 happy to come around in this topic yeah but i can relate to these people yeah in a way not because i haven't studied computer science so i'm still an amateur there yeah but i guess the ethos or the curiosity is the same yeah well oliver i'd love to start with um the origin story of speed invest so you guys started uh 10 years ago and you went from you know a small 10 million fund to a big household name now that everyone knows about i'd like to focus on the origin story so why did you start speed invest what led you to start speed invest I was running my own company for more than 10 years, sold it to Verisign, moved back to Austria after two years with, with a large corporate, which was not a lot of fun for me. <laughs> There was a, actually a failure story in the beginning. We, Me and my team tried to buy back my old company. We failed. We didn't get to win the asset. I mean, we were quite cheap in trying to buy it. <laughs> so that was maybe the reason. But anyway, we kind of we worked on this for more than half a year. And at the end of the day, I uh, had to drop it and reconfigure and think what to do. The one thing I knew is I wanted to stay with this excellent team that I had back from the days of my startup. So we wanted to do something together, but we didn't know exactly what to do. So what did we do? We started to work with individual founders. And that was the early days, pre-Speed Invest. We did that for a year and it was a lot of fun and it actually turned out to be really successful. But man, fundraising was so painful back then. <laughs> like even raising 100K, 300K, 500, was so painful. So we came to the conclusion that the only way to continue to work in a structured way operationally with founders was to raise a fund. So that's how we started. I had no clue about VC. I never worked in any VC. None of us actually had seen a VC from the inside. So we just <laughs> called up a couple of people and, and Googled and then came up with a pitch deck. So that was the start. I've heard you talk about, um, in other interviews you've given, talking about a period that preceded Speed Invest, which you've called, if I'm not mistaken, like founder market fit. And I guess that is this failure story you're talking about, these first experiences, right? Yeah. As Andreas said, many of our listeners are emerging managers or in some cases, even aspiring managers. So I'd actually love if you'd be available to shed some more light on that period, because many of our listeners are probably going through that period as we speak. So I'd love to learn more about those pre-Speed Invest founder market fit days. Honestly, I think it's hard to compare because back then the challenge was very different. Back then the challenge was, okay, Is VC even an asset class that can ever earn money? Is this even something where you can live from? Today, it's all about competition. It's positioning. Back then, positioning was not important because we were the only ones around, basically. It was, I remember the first pitch of Sweden West we did to founders was, hey, guys, we're the ones that actually have money. <laughs> so that was very, very sufficient back then. That's not sufficient these days anymore. Why did we do it? We did it because we felt that there is a very specific value we can deliver to our founders. 
then raising capital was an instrument to be able to do that. And I think that point is still very true, especially today, because if all you do is deploy capital, uh, then you most likely will not be successful. So I guess if I'm an emerging manager, I, I would have to think very, very hard what is that I love to do and what is where I can truly bring value to the table that not anywhere else can founders can get as well. And then you need to be very, very careful in picking the people you do this with because what everybody underestimates is just timing and how brutally long everything takes in venture. <laughs> that we should definitely also dive into. But I would love to hear, Oliver, your reflections on this period where, you know, in the beginning, you were very much investing in what you might call frontier VC, meaning there wasn't capital there and people didn't understand the business models and the technology and so on and wasn't really ready and all those things. I always think back to climate tech just seven years ago. You know, we had 350 million euros invested all across the world and now it's 16 billion invested in 2019 and this year it's 32 billion so far. I'm curious to hear your reflections on these cycles or, you know, VC broadening horizontally. Have you seen those? I'm guessing you are one of the people who would have seen most of those developments take place. I think the acceleration is relatively new at that level that we are seeing it now. At Speed Invest, we always felt we are an expanding universe from day one, right? It was maybe the first two, three years we were relatively slow. But since then, each year we felt, okay, actually our market is accelerating crazily. And, and then there was always this question, will this keep going or will there be some correction? I came personally to the conclusion that we're probably still somewhere around 10, 15% of the market size that venture or our industry will be. I think it's vastly underrated still the opportunity. I think if when we started, people told me, okay, a seed fund should not be bigger than 50 million, maybe 60 million. That's the right size seed fund, everything else. Nobody will be able to return that. Nowadays, people think very, very differently. And I wouldn't be surprised if in a few years from now, you will see a billion dollar seed funds out there that actually work at a completely different scale. The underlying industry change is so gigantic that the opportunity is just so big. And then the, I think the topics, the sectors, I mean, you need to know where to play as an investor. But at the end of the day, it's a horizontal phenomenon that touches every single aspect of our world. And I'm actually curious there, because if, if we are at 15%, and 15%, will we see the growth or where's the opportunity? Is it in expanding VC vertically, so to new or deeper into the verticals that we are now? So going even earlier and funding even more startups in the same verticals? Or is it more about broadening VC into new verticals? Clearly both. Where is the opportunity not? Let's put it this way. I think the opportunity is not in building a generalistic capital allocation machine that doesn't go deep into either into a given vertical or into a given business model. The VC industry has been a cottage industry for the last 20, 30 years. There was no sophistication at the end of the day. There was too little money around to build sophistication and specialization. Um, but that's exactly what is happening now. You, you get to see the specialization along very, very different themes or topics. And if you don't have that, founders will simply not take your money. And therefore, I think it's very, very dangerous to not build this expertise and not come with this expertise. Each year, we examine which topics are the next ones where we want to build a focus team or focus fund around it. And there are endless opportunities, right? Look at the new wave of Web 3.0 or crypto blockchain technology that's in itself crazily expanding universe. Look at climate tech, of course. I mean, we pass a very, very big topic. Look at health. Health in itself, you can divide health into three, four huge buckets of opportunities. 
just looking at the way that algorithmic approaches disrupt pharma development. I mean, that's, that's amazing. I don't know. It's amazingly <laughs> big, right? I think you have to pick your battles and be very clear where you want to go. And then you sh people shouldn't be too worried. But of course, as we know, venture is a brutal game of few wins, which make a huge difference. So make sure that wherever you play, you play at the highest level. A seed fund can now be 500 million euros. And that's where you're at. You have that 500 million euros across multiple sectors. Is it also divided into multiple funds that then return to different LPs and so on? That's the question. I mean, if you look at the Speedinvest history, we grew through sectoral funds. We grew through so-called focus funds. Why? Because, frankly speaking, five, six years ago, there was no institutional capital to really, for us at least, to access to build a large seed fund. So what did we do? We actually reached out to strategic LPs. We have 20 plus LPs from the manufacturing sector that went into our industrial tech fund. Same thing for media in the marketplace fund, fintech, banks, management. And that helped us grow. That helped us build, uh, yeah, basically assets under management. Now, personally, I see, so to say, the pendulum swings because now, given our success and in the last couple of years, we are now, we have access to institutional investors. So we can actually build one big fund because it brings these different sector teams back under one flagship fund. That would have not been possible even three, four years ago for us. So I think you have to very carefully think what's your LP base that fits to your existing current strategy. But then you also have to think about scale. And of course, the sector-focused strategy limits your ability to scale at some points. Uh, strategic LPs can bring, not all of them do, but can bring quite a bit of value to them. So you have to think about new products that you offer to them in a broader horizontal setup from an LP point of view. I can hear that you have a lot of thoughts going on around this topic. <laughs> you know, we always end our interviews with the question, uh, so what's next from Oliver? <laughs> I almost am tempted to ask it here. Are you looking or thinking about going into a big-ass fund <laughs> with 500 million under management in just one Go. We are going into one big horizontal flagship fund, yeah. That's clearly our path forward. Why? Because scale matters and being competitive requires infrastructure, so to say, resources. And that's, I think, where seed will go. Yeah? And then we have the chance now with 10 years in the works to be one of these platforms in Europe. There are not many platforms and we want to be one of them. Going that route, Oliver, what do you see you will lose, if anything, from your current structure? We will lose some strategic LPs who are very dedicated to only invest into a strategic focused fund. Other than that, I hope we don't lose anything. Uh, we will still have very, very focused teams that have one specific vertical, one specific theme, and that can also act and invest just as flexible and just as fast as they do now. And hopefully we still have enough and deep industry relationships for each of these sectors and each of these teams, maybe not through LP relationships, but maybe through other relationships so the industry connectivity uh, is still very, very deep. All of this happens within one fund, and that should be at least as powerful, given the additional synergies we have within the broader fund and the individual focus funds. And it actually takes out a lot of friction. Because, of course, I mean, what's the risk of running multiple vertical funds? You run into this whole franchise uh, licensing thing where you become a brand that's stuck on top of a number of different very autonomous vehicles that don't really have any any joint ownership, any joint culture, etc. behind them. So that's what we want to definitely avoid. And so we think that's the next step for us. Yeah. We always love 
diving as much as possible into the nitty-gritty details on this show. Do you have reflections on decision-making structures and so on inside the firm? Because now you've run funds that are different entities, right? And you're trying to bring them together. So I think the very, very important success criteria is to give autonomy and empowerment to the teams. I think the old hierarchical structures where the old gray-haired GPs and they then discuss a deal and kill it or not kill it and then everybody else to, at the mercy of this yeah. founder GP's structure is are gone. It's, it's too slow. It's random. Uh, there's no chance to get into the detail that you need to really assess deals at where we are. So we are very much giving the power to the teams, meaning that I don't know, the health team, the marketplace team, they really decide themselves which deals they do initially for the initial checks. Once it comes to follow-on rounds, and that's where then competition starts between the teams, and that's where the GPs will have to have this conversation. But the fundamental portfolio construction sits with the teams, and then that's where it should be. And I think overall, giving more empowerment to younger investors rather than just the experienced ones is, is also a very important thing. How about so the follow-on discussion? I always think is interesting because being a good seed investor doesn't necessarily mean you're a good Series A or Series B investor. How do you manage that internally? Because you don't have a growth team as I see it. Exactly. And that's why it's also relatively simple in our case, to be honest. I mean, if you look at even Speed Invest 3, which is a 200 million fund, more than the majority of the capital still goes into the initial investments. Mm-hmm. What can we do with the remaining money? We can actually protect our paratas in a Series A. We can't lead a Series A anyways. Then what you compare is the parata opportunities. And there you, obviously, you don't want to do all the paratas in all the deals you do. But there is a lot of information you have at hand. There's a lot of information, a signaling you get from the lead investor in the Series A. So I think actually the decisions are not that difficult, to be honest. <laughs> what is difficult is to create an engine where you have five, six teams working in parallel, the same level of quality, building a same level of excellent portfolio construction across multiple verticals across multiple geographies. At the end of the day, if we look at our fund generations, that's where you create value. It's, it is the initial portfolio construction. Of course, you want to make sure that you can deploy your paratas, but there's only so much you can do there <laughs> based on your history that you built. Maple say that when he looked at his portfolio from Floodgate, he performed or they performed quite a bit worse on their follow-ons. So they simply decided that we will distribute all money up front and then they have a one follow-on gp that is the only person who can make follow-on calls that person kind of runs their own fund as far as i remember it and i think that's always interesting and i hear many seed investors talking about 40 allocation to the first ticket and then the rest for follow-on but i hear you doing the opposite right so you're more at least above 50. Yeah, exactly. And we also came full cycle there. Like the first two funds, we had way too little follow-on money. We didn't even have the chance to do a pro rata in the Series A, and that was really, really painful. Third fund, we will actually do like 60, 40, 60% follow-on, 40% initial. Frankly speaking, last two years taught us another lesson, which is the acceleration in value that is so crazy these days. You have to rethink this. We initially had in our plan to do follow-ons in Series Bs, These days, Series Bs are 200, 300, 400 million valuations. It doesn't make any sense for a seed fund to participate there. So in that sense, we readjusted and actually are now back to more than 50% initial. And with the remaining capital that we have, the only thing we can do is Series As, really. And then it's on Series A pro 
the obvious money sinking machine or the black hole is if you try to save too many companies. But again, looking at the last two, three years, the dynamics of the industry have been so crazy that this wasn't the case anyway, because all the money goes into the high flyers. <laughs> How do you think about preempting? You don't ever do that. You don't try and say, okay, these guys are going to be racing in six months or so. Let's pull them up now. Sure, sure. Everybody's trying it, including us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with, with any success and what are the tactics? <laughs> with mild success. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, you can do it. Sometimes you can do it if you're smart and if you have a really good relationship with the founders and they like you and they want to take more money from you and actually both sides of interest, so then it can make sense. Why can it sometimes be of interest if you feel that Yes, okay, if we can quickly deploy one more million and the founders can focus on, on creating a few more customer wins and thereby the valuation may actually again triple or something like that, yeah. then it can be interesting for both parties. There are no games to be played here. Founders are too in a strong position to play games. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a few years ago, there was all this, yeah, and you have to optimize on transaction and that's where the money is. I never believed this and I think these days it's even more ridiculous to think that way but that said i noticed quite a spread in some of your funds you do uh, uh 200 to i think it was four million uh, initial tickets that's quite a span yeah yeah but that's in, in reality it's not that arbitrary what are we doing we tried to invest even at pre-seed three four years ago pre-seed was two three four five hundred k right yeah. so that's why some of our tickets were two three hundred k sized yeah these days, we try to lead pre-seed rounds as many as we can, where the typical round is five, 600K these days. So that's the initial check. But we also feel very comfortable leading a seed round, which sometimes is by now two, three million, sometimes four million. <laughs> so seed, pre-seed, that's the range you have, unfortunately. <laughs> and, do you, <laughs> yeah. and are you in any way successful in getting more money into that initial ticket? So getting founders to take on more capital for a bit more ownership than they had expected in the beginning? Post-seed, super difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, not every company goes as planned. And sometimes there are situations where you still have a very, very strong conviction in the founders, but nobody else has. So you agree to really double down and then you build ownership. But for those momentum deals, those competitive deals, yeah. the only way to build ownership is in pre-seed and seed. And then that's it. Yeah. <laughs> When do you actually do that? When do you go in and really try and build ownership in those first rounds? Or how do you think about this internally? We always think about it. That the round we're doing is the last round where we can build ownership. We don't go in with the hypothesis that, okay, let's just do a small option ticket and then see and wait. Yeah, we learned the hard way that that's almost impossible. <laughs> Especially, <laughs> I mean, you, you go into an investment always with the perspective that this could be a fund return, this could be a crazy successful company. And in some cases they are. If you then end up with a micro pre-seed ticket, it's really painful. That was not always the case like that. I mean, even three years ago, we had a pre-seed strategy that was built much more around building options and then double down and seed back three, four or five years. That was very viable. Not today. If you do it, you do as much as you can, as much as the founders accept. You were talking uh, about, you know, <laughs> the fact that when you started off, you just had the meeting saying, we are the ones that have money, <laughs> right? <laughs> and about how the fact that the industry has changed so much over the last 10 years and that now you need to build a positioning and you need to be recognized for something. I'd love to hear your thoughts of how does Speedinvest build positioning in venture in Europe particularly? You focus on very tangible, immediate value for the founders. 
For many years, venture firms could build around personal brand, storytelling, BS, frankly, a lot. <laughs> and I think that's gone because the founders are very, very sophisticated and they can pick and choose. Even a few years ago, many founders didn't believe what they heard from VCs, but they couldn't choose. So they were just saying, okay, yeah, sounds great. Let's give me the money. These days, they actually have the option. So you have to be much more precise in your value proposition and much more short term, really about what can you do for me the next 12 months. And that's what you have to answer. And there are not that many things that you can do as an investor. That's also true. So in reality, you can deliver value by expertise, which is either vertical or horizontal, vertical being now we're back to the topic of vertical teams, sector teams, where you have a portfolio of companies that are very close to the founders' yeah. topics. That's very tangible and very important for founders. Matchmaking them with other founders that have a similar issue is also super important. And then the other obvious one is horizontal expertise. Can you help us win talent? Can you actually help us with growth hacking, marketing, performance marketing, all these things? And can you do that in a way where you're not just giving us some high-level tips, but really go in and deliver operational specific input? That is where venture still doesn't scale <laughs> because you need to invest in resources. That's why Speed Invest is 80 plus people. Yeah, exactly. And I haven't found a magical way to make the difference. Yes, you can invest in technology, you can invest in very good CRM platforms, etc. Yeah. But frankly, it is a service industry and it always will be to some extent a service industry. Before diving into that topic, because that's interesting, on the founder side, does it worry you that as such a big brand VC that you might getting only like pedigree founders? What about those, you know, non-pedigree founders, the ones that are not in the hotspots? Is that a concern of yours? And how do you think about that? It concerns me quite a bit, actually. I think it's a trend that is dangerous, not just for us, but overall in the industry, especially yeah. with covid you would think that with remote deal making, it's actually becoming easier to access, but I personally think it's harder. I agree. You don't really get to meet founders, so you have to invest into known entities, which totally drives um, biases, yeah. biases you to entrepreneurs that have done something before. And that's also what I see in the Speedmas portfolio. Yes, if you look at SI3, we have way more repeat founders, pedigree founders, yeah. whatever you want to call them, than initially. What can you do? You can proactively go into markets that are more fringe markets and try to deliberately invest there. You can go into topics that have less of this, for example, deep tech, much more people coming out of universities. Initially, we actually gave ourselves even a ratio between what we call momentum deal and development deals. That's hard. We don't do that anymore, but we do have this conversation too. Some have gone about it with things like scout programs, for example, where they have like scouts that are helping them access different communities or different geographies or whatever you want to call it. What are your thoughts around that? Definitely interesting. Definitely something where I think we are contemplating doing something similar again, trying to be more innovative than just the next scout program. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it's building a network, building access to also underrepresented founders is critical. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed we launched this program together with SoftBank called Emerge, where we specifically reach out to these communities. So there's definitely something to be done. We have uh, Deepali in the UK who is specifically focusing on female founders. Yeah. I think you need to develop product propositions to these communities that are relevant and specific. Otherwise, yeah, you end up in the same echo chamber and then it's all about price and then it's all about competition and eight term sheets for the same founders. And that's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> no. We have many of the bigger funds investing into emerging managers. Instead of building a, their own scout program, they do that. 
<laughs> is that a strategy you pursue? Frankly speaking, no. We have done this once or twice and it's not completely out of the picture, but I don't believe in that too much because you need very, very strong personal relationships and it needs to be on a day-to-day -day basis. And emerging managers, if they don't have the time then to work with us that closely. We didn't have the time back then to work with our LPs. <laughs> I mean, it's, nice. it's easy to be said. And of course, you say that to your prospective LP, but it's very hard <laughs> to, to sustain it. So... I think we need to build this ourselves and we have the platform and the resources to do so. Yeah. I remember reading from, uh, speaking of platform, from Fred Destin. He wrote on Twitter, productizing VC is hard. Founders don't need how-to guides. They rarely need operational help or can get it elsewhere. They need precise, relevant, and actionable insights. What would you say to that standpoint? Because that's almost the opposite of, you know, building out a platform. Yes, and I agree it's hard. Just because it's hard, it's not impossible. And at the end of the day, yes, founders do need all that. If you only invest in repeat founders, yes, they probably don't need that. But if you actually don't want to go that path, they do need it. And even with serial founders, we have a lot of serial founders that make use of our platform. They really appreciate it because good founders are capital sensitive, so to say. They like getting high quality service for free. Yeah. Do you see, you know, a difference from vertical to vertical? Because I would have the hypothesis that B2B SaaS, they might be more, you know, they're just rolling, whereas a deep tech founder might appreciate more someone uh, who's good at marketing. You know, one thing where I very much agree with, with Fred is nobody needs how-to guides. Nobody needs, <laughs> I don't know, another workshop on go-to-market strategy that is for 100 founders. That's like this cool type approach. Actually, frankly, also what a lot of accelerators are still doing. I find it hard to believe that this is really creating value. It's very, very specific, very customized. It's one-to-one, -one, frankly. And if it's one-to-many, then it's one-to-many around very basically looping together, not even all deep tech founders, but deep tech founders that have an interest to sell to the finance industry. Putting them together in a room and then maybe have one of them who have done it successfully together with our growth team, that's interesting. Mobile subscription startups. We have at least 15 mobile subscription startups in our portfolio who all struggle with the same issues. Bring them in together in a room with, and then benchmarking their KPIs and learning experience. That's interesting. So you need to be super, super specific and spend the time and spend days and weeks with them, not an hour or some high-level bullshit. <laughs> How do you think about partnering with these organizations? So I call them ecosystem organizations, so the incubators, the accelerators, and so on. How does Speedinvest do that, given that you have such a wide geographic scope? One of the things that you hear from Speedinvest is that we are kind of everywhere, of like a lot of people on the ground. That's true, because we do have a lot of people and we want to make them useful. So we have very much encouraged everybody in Speedinvest to engage and not be arrogant. Basically, spend the time and spend the personal resource to build these relationships. And we also don't have this approach where, okay, it needs social proof before we look into a startup or anything. And I mean, yes, of course, there could be this more or less random accelerator where suddenly something super interesting comes out of. That can be the case. That's our DNA. But of course, the truth is many accelerators these days have a negative selection bias issue. So it's more about building these relationships and be nice than necessarily being very hopeful that a specific investment comes out of it. Oliver, I think we should shift topics now. I'd really love to hear more about how you think about developing talent inside Speedinvest. What I learned about VC, how typically VC firms who the last 20 years thought about talent is really about very high turnaround of people, basically more of an apprentice model. You stay for a couple of years and then you move on. 
I never thought that way. I'm an operator. I kind of build companies. So for me, talent retention was always at the center. That's the consulting model, right? It's probably a symptom of the origin of the VC industry, wouldn't you agree? It's a symptom of the origins of the culture, but also of the incentive model. Because if you don't want to share carry, it's very good to have all the people rotate out again. <laughs> that's, that's true. I never thought about it as actually being the GPs that specifically engineered turnaround inside their uh, firms. Yeah. Of course, um, if you stay with a firm for four or five years, I mean, you won't carry, right? If you stay for two years, you're fine probably just moving on because, yeah, anyway, everything paid into this model. And we came from this very maybe naive model of setting up a company where, of course, it's all about retention. And that's why for us, it was also very natural to share carry, of course, based on seniority levels and all that. But we always had this, we had carry down to the associate level. So I think that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is how can you develop a career path uh, within venture, which is actually challenging because I mean, it's a pyramid. There's only so many partner positions you can have. I mean, for Speedinvest, the answer so far was growth. <laughs> <laughs> Because if you're a growing organization, you can actually give our people a lot more opportunity to also, yeah, I mean, look at us. We built this growth with this focus fund and this focus fund. And suddenly we had a lot more partner positions to open up. And then that gave us a chance to retain a lot of very, very good people. Will this go on forever? No. But on the other hand... Yes, we think we can grow some more <laughs> and also build out the organizations more, maybe build one or two verticals more. So there is opportunity to expand. Last not least, empowerment. It sounds like a cheesy word, but uh, a lot of people come to us from other firms that felt that they did all the work, but then the eventual decision is done at the level where they have very little influence and sometimes it's really random. So giving our younger talent the chance to drive these decisions and then also be sure that they will be taken that way. That goes a long way. And I feel that's what people appreciate a lot. What I also see is that building a international and hopefully diverse companies are also very interesting. I think the days where you had just five white guys sitting in Germany or in Austria are gone, fortunately. I mean, I'm part of that origins, but still it's also a very big retention topic to create a culture that feels 21st century and not 20th century. That's actually interesting, I think, also because you have gone through that development time because a lot has happened over the last 10 years. And what have you done specifically internally to foster a more diverse culture when you have settled in in the beginning in a maybe a little male dominant? <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I would say, yes, we started off with a pure male team of partners. Yeah. But even back then, our team was very unusually diverse from the <laughs> backgrounds and personalities. And I heard you had a crazy water skier as one of them. <laughs> <laughs> That was the least crazy guy. <laughs> you know, if you look at our CVs, they're so non-VC, uh, like you could, it's almost laughable. Like none of us would have got a job at the VC. <laughs> it was easier for us to hire differently because we never thought about like hiring only from these schools or hiring only if you have a consulting background. I think we had the first person with a consulting background was actually uh, Stefan Glaestil as a partner who was extremely successful in Speed Invest. 
but he was the only kind of outlier in that <laughs> regard. Uh, so that kind of diverse mindset was built in, I hope, I would argue, very early on. And then it was easier to actually then go down the true diversity route and hire also a lot more women, of course, and also different ethnicities. But it's a constant struggle. It's like building a respectful culture, especially when you're across six offices, six different teams. A lot of things can go wrong there. It's one of the biggest parts of my job to work on that. Yeah. We were talking about Kerry a while ago, and we have a Slack community off the back of the podcast where uh, some emerging managers ask questions, and we've had a question, and I'd love to tap into your thinking a bit. Kerry for investing and non-investing roles, and this came actually from someone who works in a platform team and a VC fund. So what are your thoughts there? I'd love to hear you. So we do give Kerry also to non-investment teams quite a bit, actually. The key issue is less on this division, but more on the level of um, yeah, also age to some degree. If you're young, and Spin was, was never known for paying super well on fees because we always were cash-strapped, given our model. <laughs> and frankly, we then handed out quite a bit of carry to young positions. And when I, when I did my feedback rounds, they told me, well, it's nice, but frankly, I don't care if I get carry in six, seven, ten years. I actually need money now to live and to pay my rent and spend money. So we actually switched and gave also the option to choose. Nice. That turned out to be more appreciated than handing out carry to even the youngest positions or the earliest entry positions. A lot of platform positions are still perceived in the partnership as marketing positions. And if you see it that way, then that's also the incentive model behind it. If you see it as a true value driver, you also incentivize it differently. Makes total sense. Oliver, I think it's time we move into the final section of this interview, which is what we call the quick fire round. And just to make it a bit annoying, I'm going to throw in a new question, <laughs> which will be the first one. <laughs> no, but it's something we actually had thought of asking and I got distracted, but I'm actually curious, which is, you know, when you look back, you know, the growth of Speed Invest, you're a completely different machine now than you were 10 years back. What do you miss the most? Honestly, time with founders, like true time and really working with them on issues and not just being the CEO managing partner and saying something nice. <laughs> Showing up for the speech. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so the scripted quickfire on InVenture, what excites you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? Personally, I still love winning the struggle, like working with struggling founders that are not the superstars and finding a way to get them to save ground. It's not very fancy, but I loved it. <laughs> uh, uh, I guess it comes from your competitive side, but also the having learned to lose, as you said in the beginning of the interview, right? Yeah, and, and there you're all alone. I mean, everybody wants to get on the board of the superstars, yeah. but they're actually winning yeah. with some of these founders that, that are all alone. That's actually very satisfying, I think. What's the most counterintuitive thing that you've learned since started Speed Invest? That you can actually build a product. Yes, it's a service industry. Yes, it's all about human interaction and, and board seats. But in reality, you have to think about venture as a product yeah. organization and yeah, with all the different elements of product. And I don't think a lot of people think about this way. It took me quite a bit to figure that out and, and think about it that way. Finally, what can we expect in the future from Oliver and Speed Invest? And we've spoken a bit about it, but I'd love to close it off with this topic. I think venture is going to change dramatically, dramatically. I mean, we see everybody talks about Tiger now and, and, and all the things, the later stages. I think similar things, massive disruptions will happen also in the early stage. The venture model for seed will change and we want to drive this. We want to build products that are different and are scalable, yet highly, highly impactful for founders. And there is a lot of innovation to be done 
at the end of the day, I'm a product guy, so I want to build new products. <laughs> Maybe before we close that, without you revealing your next upcoming product that you haven't launched yet, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> what is the most important innovation that will happen in the early stages, seed stages? I'm solving the puzzle how to scale in terms of capital while keeping quality in your interactions with founders and quality in the impact. That's the puzzle you need to solve. We kind of built with these vertical teams under one fund. It's one way to think about it, how to scale. But there are many other ways. Technology will have to be involved there. Data will have to be involved there. Really engineering the knowledge flow between the portfolio will have to be involved there. That's something that is highly, highly under leveraged these days. Everybody has a founder community, but it's totally random who you meet at an event, whatever. But really building a knowledge basis that is accessible and structured this is completely unsolved and so lots of things to think about oliver thank you very much for your time this is a lot of fun for us and hopefully for you too and we hope to keep in touch after this interview as well yeah thanks a lot it was really fun yeah <laughs> have a good <laughs> evening <you> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.